This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to episode one of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast that discusses and examines the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until today. Joining us for this final episode is a member of the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter group. Welcome back, Lex. Thanks for having me back. It's an honor to be here, especially I didn't realize I was going to be on the uh, number one episode until long after we volunteered for everything. I looked at the list. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I said that one? Yeah. And quite the story it is. The death of Gwen Stacy. So spoilers. Spoilers right there in the title. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, it's hard to discuss it without doing that spoiler. Yeah, even Marvel had left the title of the the issue until the last page, just in case. But I think at this point, it's a little too late. Officially, it is titled "Death of Gwen Stacy." So yeah, well, it's the night Gwen Stacy died. Oh yeah, for sorry. Issue one twenty one. Still pretty much of a dead giveaway. No pun intended. Oh yeah, it is a two issue story that went from Amazing Spider Man one twenty one into one twenty two, written by Jerry Conway, pencil by Gil Kane inked by John Romita Sr. for the first issue and Tony Mortolero for the second, colored by David Hunt, lettered by Artie Simic, and edited by Roy Thomas. Cover dates are June and July 1973, with release dates of March 13th and April 10th, 1973. And yes, this is the number one story in the countdown. And yeah, the first one has a cover that's Turning Point. And this is the era when we still had dialogue on the cover. And what we've come to refer to as the floating heads of guilt, except I believe in this one, they've all got uh, nice frames around them. So it's like the weirdest wall in Spider-Man's house somewhere. Yeah, it's essentially all of his supporting cast. So it's MJ, Ned Leeds, Norman and Harry Osborn, J. Jonah Jameson, Gwen Stacy, Aunt May, and the Robertsons, with Spider-Man saying, someone close to me is about to die, someone I cannot save, my Spider-Sense is never wrong, but who, who? And not a trick, not an imaginary tale, but the most startlingly unexpected turning point in the Web Slinger's entire life. How can Spider-Man go on after being faced with almost unbelievable death? And it's actually pretty accurate, which is something that's, you know, funny for a cover of a comic book these days. But that act- this was a major turning point for Spider-Man, which is probably the significance of this particular issue. I was saying I noticed Gwen Stacy dies and they left her dead. I mean, we get clones and alternate universe versions, but this Gwen Stacy, his Gwen Stacy, we don't see her again. Yeah, the original 616 Gwen Stacy has stayed dead for 43 years and counting. Yeah, the, uh, I think uh, Uncle Ben's the only one who can beat that number, except for Gwen mm-hmm. Stacy's dad, too, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Ned Stacy as well. But Gwen may actually be the person who's still dead who's had the most appearances on the comic page. I'll give you that, too. <laughs> Right. The other ones that have stayed dead, you know, your Uncle Ben's, your Thomas and Martha Wayne's, mm-hmm. I think the only one that might come close is Jonathan Kent. Mm-hmm. But even he sometimes isn't dead, not because he came back, but because they rebooted continuity and, hey, he's not dead now. Yeah, because we need to kill him again later. Yeah. But also, and Gwen Stacy was such an important character, they haven't been able to leave her alone. She's got her own ongoing comic right now in Spider-Gwen using the alternate universe version of her. Mm-hmm. With Spider-Gwen, there's Gwenpool out there that's had one-shots. 
I don't know. She's, she's so. got her own ongoing too, but I don't think that's supposed to be the same. That's not Gwen Stacy. That's actually a girl named Gwen Poole. Okay. Shows you how far behind on my reading I am. Yeah, well, I don't think they decided that until a little bit after they started publishing it, honestly. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, we should probably run through a quick plot synopsis. Mm-hmm. So the issue opens with Peter as Spider-Man looking in on his buddy Harry, who's being visited by Gwen and MJ, and is trying to pull through his second round of drug use. It does tell us later in the issue that he's been, that he was using LSD. Mm-hmm. And this got my uh, favorite term for it, which I know over on Drunk Pete, we still use it as uh, mind soap. Yep. So we see, you know, when Spider-Man takes off the togs, goes in as Peter, we see Norman Osborn is there and stressed. And, you know, Peter's worried that maybe his memory is coming back. Because at this point in continuity, mm-hmm. he'd been defeated as the Green Goblin to the point that he'd lost his, or he'd gotten amnesia and didn't remember that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, and I believe he didn't even remember he was the Green Goblin. No. No, and that was kind of a thing since he first discovered Peter's identity way back. I don't remember if that was in the Ditko era. It would have to be the John Romita Sr. era, because mm-hmm. his identity was unrevealed in the Ditko era, and that's why people have claimed that Ditko left, because he wasn't happy with the identity given, mm-hmm. even though I think it's structured well enough, he was the most foreshadowed candidate from the Ditko era. And Ditko has denied it in the very rare interviews that he has done. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that had been status quo for a while. Every return of the Green Goblin was when he got his memory back, and then the story resolved when he got the amnesia again. Yep. Well, he's always been a little unbalanced. Yep. And that is what happens here. His memory returns, and you know now he remembers that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are one and the same, that he is the Green Goblin. And he essentially blames Peter and Peter's friends for what's happening to Harry. So he comes and kidnaps Gwen Stacy and draws Peter out to a bridge. It's referred to in the text as the George Washington Bridge, although apparently that's not the bridge that Gil Kane drew. Yeah, I believe that's the Brooklyn Bridge they drew, but I've not, I haven't been to uh, either of them, so I couldn't confirm that. But I was watching for it on my most recent read-through. The only place where it is specifically identified is when Spider-Man's actually swinging up to it. He says it's the George Washington Bridge, so he might be a little distracted at the moment and got them confused. Maybe. We'll run with that. Yeah. That seems to be the best possible solution. I've, from interviews with uh, various comic creators, they always seem to make a comment on which one it is later, as in it's just become a big joke that, you know, it's like, oh yeah, the George Washington Bridge, which coincidentally looks exactly like the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, the the battle starts with Green Goblin on the bridge. Gwen Stacy's up there with him. They are fighting, and Gwen gets knocked off the side. Spider-Man tries to catch her with his webbing before she hits the water, and there's a tiny little snap lettered in at the back of her neck when he catches her. And when he brings her up, she is dead. And Norman Osborn says a fall from that height would kill anyone before they struck the ground. But for you, my friend, death will come more quickly and more simply than the shock of a sudden fall. Yeah, this it, it's pretty clear from the art that she's not alive as he's hauling her up too. And it's mm-hmm. another one of those things where the little snap mark that you see when the webbing hits her and catches her is placed down at her neck. So they kind of the text starts to imply that it was the fall itself that killed her and that Spidey only ever caught a corpse, but from what you see in the, that one actual panel and then later on throughout pretty much the rest of Spider-Man's history, he always, you know, acknowledges the fact that it was him catching her, the force of that that snapped her neck. Yeah, and that's, he's a physics major. Mm-hmm. 
he knows the fall's not going to kill you. Right. <laughs> Frankly, Norman should too, being a scientist, but... But, you know, unhinged, yeah. as we said. Yeah. Had Spider-Man's web done the bungee thing that they did in the Sam Raimi films, Gwen Stacy might still be alive. Mm-hmm. But the first issue here ends with Peter declaring, you killed a woman I love, I'm going to kill you. Right. And the cover of issue 122 is definitely a product of an era in which the readers did not see the solicitations text and didn't know what was coming next. Because the end of issue 121, and as Lex said, they put the cover there the night Gwen Stacy died just to prevent surprises from happening. Well, the next cover starts off with, you know, first I finished off Gwen Stacy, now it's your turn. Spider-Man saying, wrong goblin, you murdered the only girl I'll ever love, and today's the day you're going to die. <laughs> with Peter on the bridge, holding St- Gwen Stacy's corpse while the Green Goblin is throwing pumpkin bombs with truly horrible accuracy. <laughs> yeah, well, he might have moved. <laughs> Spidey might just be hopping backwards <laughs> in that cover, but it's a it's definitely a little bit uh revealing although like we were saying also earlier with comic book cover accuracy these days that may not necessarily have been what was going on inside but if you saw this one on the racks you probably would pick it up and the one before it probably if that was an option yeah. in 1973 yep well, i guess it depends on how many are still left on that spinner rack in 73 exactly that's the decade that the comic shop exclusive comic store started i don't know if it had started at this point. So if they were out there, I would say they were few and far between right. in 1973. So it would still be, you know, the bulk of the purchases would be done at the newsstand. Mm-hmm. But in any event, The Goblin's Last Stand is the cover of the story on both the cover and page one. And, you know, Peter and the Goblin get into a pretty knockdown drag out fight. So Peter's clearly furious to the point that he's not fighting to the best of his abilities because he is so distracted and distraught. Uh, the goblin initially gets away, and Peter's, you know, protecting the body of Gwen Stacy. And even the police on the scene, there's two officers, and one of them is saying that, hey, he must have killed her, Jameson's right, that kind of thing. Whereas the other officer, and nice touch for the time, it's the Caucasian officer who's flying off the handle, and the African-American officer who sees what's really going on. So he's the one saying, I don't see anything of the kind, rookie. I see a man in pain, and that's what you'd see if you had eyes. Yeah, and I like that they refer to the officer that's blaming Spider-Man as a rookie in this. And I like that because it kind of gives the impression that the officer that can tell that, you know, Spider-Man's in pain, that not only can he see that Spider-Man doesn't look guilty, but it's like he's been on the force long enough to notice, oh, Spider-Man's been around and he's actually been helping us. So back off on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do get the way that, that this is handled. And even that experienced officer steps forward and says, fella, I hate to do this to you, but the ambulance is here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, he's saying, well, Spider-Man killed her, because we know the way Peter handles guilt. Everything that happens to everyone around him is his fault. Yes. Ricky says, Sarge, did you hear that? And the experienced officer says, I heard it. Just shut up. And the officer's saying, you're going to have to come with us for questioning. And Spider-Man says, no, there's a guy who owes me, owes me plenty. I'm going to find him. And basically telling the officers he's going to go kill the Green Goblin. They both end up opening fire because Peter did physically assault them. But the experienced officer is again saying, shoot to wound, blast it, shoot to wound. Right. So you see the experienced officer with the uh, respect for Spider-Man, at least at least enough to allow him to swing away from this one. Mm-hmm. And Peter is still crazed. He goes to see Harry, but Norman's not there. So he leaves again. You know, He goes to see Joe Robertson to find out if anyone has seen Norman Osborn in the past couple of hours, if he owns any unusual properties. And they do track down that he owns an abandoned warehouse, and he was seen there 40 minutes ago. 
Jameson shows up and Spider-Man just webs his mouth shut, but not his nose, so he's not a killer yet. And then takes off and attacks the goblin in his warehouse. Right. I was going to say, yeah, he finds him here in his warehouse where you get the uh, next fight between the two of them. And I didn't remember this part until I'd reread it for the podcast that this fight ends with the scene from the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man where the glider comes at Peter Parker as he's trying to decide if he should, you know, continue fighting him in what would most likely just end his life at that point. And Peter Parker decides not to when the glider is coming straight for him and thanks to his spider sense leaps out of the way causing it to impale the Green Goblin. And I didn't realize this scene was lifted directly from here for the uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Comics Code Authority prevented a complete impalement. It, when he glomb collapses, it kind of looks like it just sort of crushed his organs and it's still around him. But yeah, I think that's just straight up Comics Code Authority. Yeah, it, it's clear what they intend for that to look like, but there's no blood. Yep. And there is a witness, although this issue does not reveal who that witness is. I don't think I've read the next one. Do you happen to know who that was? Yeah, that was Harry. Oh, that was Harry. Okay, so you got to watch. So we see Harry blames Spider-Man for his father's death, as he does in the movie, although it's because mm-hmm. he witnesses it, which probably they didn't do in the movie because, hey, Spider-Man would have no mask on right. at the time. Exactly. So he blames him, and that's what leads him to become the next goblin. And I, I didn't realize this was also then the death, at least for the time, of the Green Goblin. Yeah, that... I believe that Norman actually stays dead from here to the Clone Saga. Oh, wow, that's good run. Yep. Uh, in the epilogue, Peter comes home and finds the, up to this point, pure party girl MJ waiting for him. And, you know, she says she's really torn up, but he's like, what? You what? You wouldn't be sorry if your own mother died. What do you care? You get out of here. You know, I hate sick beds. I wouldn't want to spoil your fun. And this is actually the first step towards adding depth to MJ, because she was straight up party girl up to this point. That she goes to that door, hesitates and looks back, and stays behind. She closes the door, but she's still in there. Yeah, I, I, this is one of the nicer pages as far as uh, Mary Jane's concerned, too. Because, like you said, uh, going from Party Girl to adding some depth to her, but this was also just a very nice way to depict, you know, she doesn't say anything after she closes the door. There's She goes to the door, opens it, there's a moment of hesitation, and then you can tell there's feelings for Peter, so she stops, closes the door, turns around, and I don't think I've seen, you know, three consecutive panels without text like this very often in comics from this era anyways. Oh, no. No, this was definitely a rare thing. Mm -hmm. But it was a nice piece of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Very nice, and it was quite the the upgrade. So that's the plot. If we want to talk about significance... (laughs) Gwen Stacy was really Peter's first serious relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a bit of a relationship with Betty Brandt. Right. Well, and Gwen, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, this was, the Gwen Stacy relationship was his first really lasting mm-hmm. adult relationship. And this is where that ends, right? He still carries a bit of a torch for her. He still mm-hmm. has respect for her every time she comes up, and she does come up again later. A few times. Mm-hmm. But this was the death of Gwen Stacy. This for a long time, was the death of Norman Osborn. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I don't believe he came back prior to the Clone Saga, but I could be wrong about that. This is a turning point where MJ grows up, and they start to flush her out as they position her in the long term to become his next serious love interest, although that's a very slow burn. Right. Although, I mean, obviously they eventually get there because they were married for quite a while, and... yeah. That ends entertainingly. But even like uh, Gwen Stacy 
I like the fact that if you like throughout the rest of canon, Gwen Stacy was the love of Peter Parker's life to the point that earlier in this uh, podcast, even when they we did House of M, he is given his fondest wish, the thing that he wants most, as everybody in the in the series did, and his was to have Gwen Stacy back. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, realizes he's married to her, and then at the end of that story, he goes back to not being married to her, instead being married to MJ, but remembering both and trying to figure out how to deal with that knowledge. Yeah, and even as we said when we covered Spider-Man Blue, mm-hmm. the, the evidence on the page says that the Peter and Gwen relationship was much healthier than the Peter-MJ. Right, right, especially for MJ. Yeah, yeah, so... Even beyond that, and that's the significance in continuity, outside continuity, as you've already said. This has inspired scenes in multiple movies, mm-hmm. not just the entire climax of the Sam Raimi film where, you know, the Green Goblin drops MJ off a bridge that they don't actually name in the film, but it's, you know, just they pick the one that looks like the one drawn here. Right. And I mean, this is definitely one of the milestone moments for Spider-Man's narrative. I mean, the death of Uncle Ben is obviously one of your big deals because that's what turns him from being just, you know, a costumed entertainer into, you know, a superhero. But if you're going to continue through the story, any the next big story, the next big story point would be the death of Gwen Stacy because that's just piles on the guilt form, and it's one of those moments where, like, Spider-Man seems to be driven by guilt, and it was usually guilt for Uncle Ben, but after this, it becomes guilt for. Gwen Stacy as well, just like a, hey, I'm working at this and people I love still die, so if I don't keep working at this, I'm going to lose even more. Oh, yeah. And I think that's why we we see it in so many different uh, mediums. I mean, you see it in the, like, the Amazing Spider-Man movie actually depicted it, but in, anytime he's animated, in the animated story, if Gwen Stacy dot or if Gwen Stacy shows up at all, this is, ends up being how she goes out, and that's usually the reason she's even written in in the first place nowadays. Mm-hmm. Even the Ultimate Universe Gwen Stacy she didn't die quite this way because they'd already kind of done the riff on that with MJ, mm-hmm. with her dropping off the bridge. But she died before, you know, they used clones to bring the character back, in a manner of speaking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is big. It is one of those seminal moments in Spider-Man continuity, which is why it's been adapted to both film series so far. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, in a lot of cases, when people are looking back at the comics industry, they break it up into ages. You've got your Golden Age, your Silver Age, your Bronze Age. This is often the signpost that is used to say the Silver Age is over, we are now in the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. When John and Wilson and I were discussing the first issue of Fantastic Four in this podcast, I liken Fantastic Four number one to the start of puberty and sort of the life cycle of Mm -hmm. comics. That's the point where it started to grow up. Using that same analogy, I would say this is the point where in your late teens or early adulthood, you have your first major screw up. This is the point where you know, you realize things can go wrong for you even when you mostly do the right things or with the right intentions. It, whether it's getting fired be- from a job you enjoy because you made mistakes, whether it's messing up one of your relationships because of something you did. You know, most of us have something you could point to where you say, yeah, I should have done that better. And it was a major mm-hmm. learning experience when you bought something up. To me, I think that's what this is. It's the moment when you realize that actions really do have consequences. Right. And the lives of these characters aren't completely invincible. Because up to this point, most major deaths in comics, you know, they were either villains that just weren't popular enough to get written back into the series, or these are characters who who were basically created to be dead. Right. Right. Uncle Ben, I think one of the reasons he has stayed dead, just like Thomas and Martha Wayne have stayed dead, 
is because their deaths are a big part of the makeup of the character. Right. The story is about their death, not about the character. Exactly. Right. If Uncle Ben had survived, Peter might still be an entertainer. Mm -hmm. If Thomas and Martha Wayne had survived, we may not have a Batman. They are fundamental to that. Gwen Stacy was introduced to be Peter's love interest. I mean, it was almost 90 issues before they killed her. And one of the reasons they killed her is because they just didn't know what to do with her. Another one is that, based on the letters pages, she wasn't very popular. You know, people even kept saying, no, she should, he should be with Mary Jane instead. He should be with Mary Jane instead. So they tried restyling Gwen's hair to make her more like Mary Jane to increase her popularity, and that didn't work. Poor Gwen. Yeah, I was going to say, nowadays, though, it's gone the other way where people can't get enough of her. Yeah, it's like they had no idea that she had fans, and the fans didn't come out of the, of the woodwork until she was dead. And at one point, I read every issue of Amazing Spider-Man to date in sequence off the GitCorp DVD ROMs, and I've got to say, she wasn't a well-defined character. Mm. Prior to this, it was almost like she was there just to be, you know, the pretty girl to be on Peter's arm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I know, personally, I wasn't even alive when this comic was published, and I imagine a lot of, you know, modern comic fans are in a similar boat, and... Gwen Stacy, up until, uh, I think it was even we were reading this with Drunk Pete, I had not been particularly familiar with her. Like, I knew the story. Everybody knows this happened to him, and everybody knows this was somewhere in Spidey's past, and by everybody, I mean comic book nerds. But the, like, I didn't know what Gwen Stacy meant. I knew that, you know, oh, she was that blonde girl Peter used to love before she died. And maybe, you know, a Spider-Man Blue would have come out where I got some sort of history on the character, but the char the girlfriend of Spider-Man, as far as I knew growing up and up until present, was always Mary Jane. So it wasn't until recently when, with the introduction of Spider-Gwen or some of the other throwbacks to Gwen Stacy, that I was exposed to her. So I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I remember hearing about Gwen Stacy, but they don't have the frame of reference for who she really was for to see this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how were you first introduced to the story? If it wasn't for Drunk Pete itself, it was in that era within the last couple of years, just going back and saying, oh, let me catch these, you know, important issues and actually re -re actually read some of them and getting it that way. Like it definitely wasn't a sitting down and reading from issue one up through issue, you know, 121. I It was me sitting down going, oh, this one, I know this is important, pulling this one out and then going on to the next one for the continuation of the story. Just because this is going to be numbered episode one, it's the final episode, but if someone finds it later in the feed and don't realize we're counting down, maybe you should explain what Drunk Pete is. Good point. In case you, uh, Drunk Pete would be a uh, Twitter group um, started by uh, Comic Fiend and um, Dr. Spidey, where every Saturday night we'll sit down, we'll have a drink, and we'll read some Spider-Man story. Sometimes it's a great classic. Uh, recently in April, we did the April Fool's Month, so we got a whole bunch of his uh, less popular villains like Kangaroo and Grizzly, and just things like that, and we'll go through them. And sometimes we pick out very important issues, and we try to time them with whatever's going on. When Amazing Spider-Man 2 had come out where they borrowed this uh, Death of Gwen Stacy storyline, we read this issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, for me, it was, as you said, comic fans are aware of them. When I was in junior high and high school, the first round of Marvel trading cards hit, and one of the sections of that card collection were the Marvel milestones mm -hmm. and the major stories, and this made that list. So I was aware it happened because of that. I learned about the existence of Gwen Stacy because her death was a milestone, but I didn't actually read it 
until this came out in, I believe it was Essential Spider-Man Volume 6. So I, all my introductions to, well, right up to the point where Harry becomes the Green Goblin, I first read them in those Essential Amazing Spider-Mans Volumes 1 through 7. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the exception of just a couple issues around where Doc Ock and Aunt May are going to get married that I read in this little digest at one point. So, so you got to the story pretty much at like you actually I don't know how much is covered in the essentials, but did you actually get to start more or less with Amazing Fantasy fifteen and move all the way through until you got to this part of the story? Yep, that's what the essential line is, is it's starting from the beginning and giving you a pretty complete picture. So Essential Spider Man Volume One is just the Spider Man story from Amazing Fantasy fifteen, mm-hmm. as well as the first twenty issues of Amazing Spider Man and the first annual. And if you get one of the earlier printings, they put the annual at the end instead of where it belongs in continuity. So if you're reading one of those, pay very close attention to the caption boxes. When it says, next up, the annual, jump to the back, read the annual, and then come back to read the next issue because the next issue spoils what happens in the annual. Yeah, I I wish there was a better numbering system for comic books just because it'll skip from, you know, the regular line to an annual, maybe to some sort of, like nowadays they use a lot of point one storylines. Sometimes they'll stick stuff in that goes back a few issues, and I just wish there was some overarching numbered line to cover stories and across different titles and everything like that. Yeah, that's why I'm when I'm reading titles in my database, you know, I've got them listed by series group. So your Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man web of amazing are all in the Spider-Man group, and I say, okay, sort by release date. Yeah. That that's the best you can hope for usually is release date. But I've seen I've seen there's a couple of series where like I think it was Hawkeye recently that had issue fifteen come out after issue sixteen. Yeah, and I've seen that before. I mean, the last issue of the original Old Ben Logan story was running late, mm-hmm. so Wolverine seventy six came out before seventy five, but it did involve spoilers. Mm-hmm. I just remember by comic shop guy having to explain to all the Wolverine subscribers. No, you didn't miss one. They really did publish out of order. Yeah. So they, they just need like a little text box, kind of like the star date that you got out of uh, Star Trek. So. Yeah. But other, yeah, so that is, yeah, for me, that was it. I first read it in the essentials, which, as we said, at least with the later printings, they do try to put everything in the most readable order mm-hmm. for the issues there. And they'll often have crossovers. So like the Nova Essential also has the Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man issue. Because one of the stories started in Nova and finished there, or vice versa. Right. I believe it actually started in Peter Parker because that one had higher sales. So they were hoping to draw the Peter Parker readers into Nova to give that a shot. Well, I hope they made it. That was always, those were good stories. They were for the 25 issues that one lasted. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much else there is to say. It's well executed. The art is essentially as good as the technology that time allows. Yes. I have never seen an issue penciled by Gil Kane where I wasn't happy with the pencils. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's poorly inked, but I've always been happy with his pencils. And I also, it it's one of those stories where the, the art is really well done to the point that when you get to the point where she falls off the bridge and Pete catches her and you see that little tiny snap, that panel alone will cause me to pause and just stare at it for a moment. It's one that like, I remember when the first time I was reading it, I think I actually literally did pause and, like, just stepped away for a moment to collect myself because it's a very emotional drawing there. And you can see exactly what's going on in the panel. The very last page of this with MJ closing the door, they draw her. She's upset. And just the look on her face as she stops, you can tell what she's thinking about closing the door and turning around. 
they're very, very strong emotional beats, and they're ones that'll really draw you into the story. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think it's perfectly executed as far as that goes. Oh, to me, Gwen Stacy was not much of a character, but this allowed her, or this used her to allow the Spider-Man title and effectively the comics industry to grow up. Mm -hmm. Nobody had told a story quite like this, where a major character dies in this fashion before. Mm -hmm. Not even remotely like this. So. It, like I said, this is a watermark when you look at, you know, the golden age that a lot of people say kicks off with Action Comics number one. Right. The Silver Age, there's some debate over where that starts, but I would say that the two front runners for where the Silver Age begins are either the first appearance of the Barry Allen Flash in Showcase or the first appearance of the Martian Manhunter, right? The Flash appearance seems to be the, the more common signpost, but you can make a strong case for the Martian Manhunter, which may or may not have appeared first. I don't remember the exact publication order. But again, those are the, the two major signposts there. Anyone I've heard discuss the Bronze Age and say where the Silver Age ends and the stories grow up and they're not necessarily aimed at seven and eight-year-olds anymore puts that signpost right here with the death of Gwen Stacy. So even if you're not looking at this in terms of the continuity to Spider-Man, I mean, most people out there, most of the characters in comics don't know or didn't know at the time that Spider-Man and Peter Parker were the same. So the death of Gwen Stacy would have been just another statistical tragedy as far as Captain America or Daredevil or the X-Men would have been concerned at this point. Right. Right, it was just a blip on the news and it's, uh, you know, damn, unfortunately can't save them all, too bad. Oh, obviously, the DC characters wouldn't have seen this, but the creators would have said, hey, that worked. We can do this now. And you can see just the level of storytelling take that step up. As they realize, yeah, we can get a little bit more through the Comics Code Authority these days. And I wonder how much of that is just because this happened in a Spider-Man story. I mean, we were talking a couple weeks ago in the Craven's Last Hunt episode. You know, we were saying that we couldn't believe it got by the Comics Code Authority when we saw Vermin literally picking the flesh off the bones of one of his victims. It's a very grim and grisly thing and something way beyond what the Comics Code Authority usually allowed. And since then, I've been wondering... Maybe it's because of the history Spider-Man had with the Comics Code Authority. Because about 25 or 30 issues prior to this, Stanley wrote a story at the request of the U.S. government to show the dangers of drug use because they found it was a problem. And he put it in Spider-Man, which they asked him to do because they found, you know, the people we want to warn about the dangers of drug use tend to read Spider-Man. Can you write that story? So he wrote a story where Harry Osborn got into drugs and got seriously messed up by it. And the Comics Code Authority said no drug use cannot be depicted and would not approve it. And Stan Lee was understandably confused. He's like, the government asked me to do this. It is very, very much an anti-drug story. Right. And they wouldn't put the stamp on us. We said, you know what? We're going to take that risk. And they published three issues without the Comics Code Authority stamp of approval. And the sales didn't change. And that was always the fear is that ever since the Wortham and the Seduction of the Innocent and those trials and the congressional meetings took place, there was the fear that without that Comics Code Authority stamp, retailers wouldn't carry it and the sales wouldn't be there. And then they proved with that story that, you know, if you've got established sales, retailers would take that risk. And people just kept buying the title. So I've always wondered, is part of the reason this came through, even with the snap on there, because the Comics Code Authority was a little reluctant to pull their stamp from Spider-Man because they didn't want that to happen again. Yeah, because at that point you start proving that the Comics Code Authority isn't necessary. Yeah, and then you start to question, what kind of authority are they? Exactly. And it wasn't, uh, I think it was 2008 that they, the last comic stopped applying for 
approval from the Comics Code Authority. I think it was I think it was Archie was the last one who actually was like, yeah, I guess we don't need this anymore. Um, yeah, I don't remember if it was Archie or DC, but it was very near the end. Yeah, Marvel did definitely drop out before DC did. Yeah. And yeah, Archie just typically doesn't tell stories that cross any lines that they have concerns with. It was they're more, yeah, sure, whatever, rubber stamp. You're not sure here. Archie was probably what they were using as their guideline for, oh, is it okay in Archie? All right, then it gets approved. Yeah. Although now, I mean, in the 70s, they weren't allowed to use zombies, which is why the Avengers have a story where they are fighting Zuvembies <laughs> with some very cramped lettering because they had to re-letter the issue after referring <laughs> to them as zombies. Yeah, there's a lot of fun little things that have gotten changed because of the Comics Code Authority. Like uh, Morbius, I believe, his entire existence as being a living vampire is because the Comics Code Authority wouldn't allow a dead one. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that they had to do to kind of skirt the rules of the time. But as I said, I wonder if that experience sort of gave them the reason to kind of let Spider-Man go and not really push anything that would have made them take that badge off because they would have kept on going without it. Right. And because Spider-Man then set the precedent, others could go there. And obviously others went further because Spider-Man is typically not the book that's going to push the limits. Well, not push them too far, at least. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the first time I could I could point to where, you know, we had a story that had this kind of impact. And I mean, we'd, we'd seen death in comics before, but never the death of a character that meant this much to the title. Right. Now, granted, she wasn't, you know, folded up and put in a refrigerator, but still. Yeah, and this also does follow after George Stacy's death. It does, yeah. I believe that one was also in the late 90s. Yeah. As in, like, issue numbers. Issue number. Not, I was just thinking the same thing. Not publication year, yeah. Just to be clear to the listeners, and the fight with Dr. Octopus, that was such a big part of the last issue of Marvels, mm-hmm. which again, John M. Wilson and I were talking about it. That's where Marvels ended, looking at the golden and silver age of Marvel Comics. The death of Gwen Stacy is basically what wrapped that issue up, as, or that series up as well. Right. And it, it's very well put in there, too. I liked how they had to, uh, they like you were saying, Gwen Stacy, as far as the world of heroes was concerned, was a non-entity. She was just some random bystander. But Phil, they had to write, he's going to interview Gwen Stacy because she had been close to Spider-Man stories and ends up meeting her that way before, you know, the death of Gwen Stacy happened. So they had to write it in such a way where he would even know who she was before they had that become the uh, capstone for the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all started when he was getting her take on the death of her father, mm-hmm. actually. So I think from here, we move into the portion of the program that I have shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, uh, which everyone should be listening to. They're covering every movie, all the animated series has already been covered, and they're going through the TV series as well. Yeah. So in fact, if I've done the counting correctly, Mission Log should be at episode 21 out of 26 in the four season of Next Gen when they release their new episode the day after this comes out. So are there any messages and morals? I mean. We we do get one explicit message of don't do the mind soap, specifically aimed at Harry Osborne in this one. But I think the bigger message, uh, I always read it in into it as trying to teach a little bit of hubris because Spider-Man at the point where he ends up catching Gwen Stacy is completely confident. He's like, oh yeah, I've got this, no problem. And it's not until he's got her body all the way back up on the bridge before he realizes, hey, wait a minute, I didn't do this right. Yeah. You know, in terms of the, the lessons that readers take out of it, the don't do drugs is crystal clear. Yeah. As opposed to meth clear. I don't know. Then 
you know, again, the actions have consequences and you have to be careful of what you're doing and plan correctly. And that's, that's it. Like you said, Spider-Man was cocky and it cost Gwen her life. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had better odds of survival had he let her hit the water. Right. Which is saying quite a bit, considering that jumping off a bridge tends to be a pretty standard suicide technique. Exactly. So you could still place the lion's share of the blame onto the Green Goblin. And it is possible that Spider-Man couldn't have saved her either way. Falling from that height, water is also not very forgiving. You'd have to be basically aware of not just your fall, but of how to dive safely. Right? You'd essentially need to be a trained swimmer or very lucky right. to survive a fall from that height into the water. And that's assuming that you know the actual concrete base of the bridge doesn't suddenly get wider when you hit the surface, and she's not going to just smack in a concrete six inches down. Right. And I think the second issue, uh, 122, has the other message of the entire issue up until Spidey gets back to the Green Goblin is mostly revenge-driven. Peter Parker is angry that the Green Goblin cost him Gwen Stacy's life and is going after him to kill him. And it gets to the very end before Spidey has that moment of, wait, I can't take a life that makes me no better than him. So there's that, you know, revenge doesn't get you what you... I'm not even sure how to phrase that right. You don't want to practice revenge because that's not going to bring Gwen back. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I would say from there, this is the part where we normally talk about what's happening next week. Now, last week I announced that there's going to be a bit of a wrap-up, but I think we're going to do that this week. And it just wouldn't be right to wrap up the series without inviting back Mr. John M. Wilson. He was here from the start. He has been the guest host in more episodes than anybody else to date. So he wasn't originally slated as the guest this time, but I just didn't want to do it without him. So welcome back, John. Hello. So happy to be back. This has been this has been quite a journey, and here we are at the end. Yeah, or at least an end. Well, there are no beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time, but it is an ending. Yeah, and lo, there shall be an ending. So I just want to thank all the guest hosts that we've had so far. Uh, so in terms of number of appearances, sorting that way, John, again, first, thank you. 19 out of 75 episodes have wow, featured you. 19. 19. And I don't know if listeners realize this, we had never podcasted together before this series. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is not going to be the last time we do it together. No, we we, we got to do other things together. I'll make another list of 75-somethings, and I'll have you one nineteen of them. Okay, works for me. <laughs> From there, thanks also go to Jim Radloff, to Al Sedano, to Ellen Middleton, to Lex Pendragon, to Stephen Lacey, to Fractures, Andrew Leyland, Anthony Stauffer, Matt Piercy, Ben Merritt, Scott McElroy, Amanda Westfall, Ben Avery, Josh Avery, Christopher Tyler Short, Dan Gavazdin, Mark Adams, Alex Case, Brian Rollins, Ed Moore, Haywood Wong, Mark Smith, Paul Spataro, Emily Middleton, Proud Mutant, and Rob Gillespie. Extra special off-topic thanks to Amanda Ray Westfall for saying, yes, we are no longer boyfriend-girlfriend, we are now engaged. Hooray! That's always exciting! And now, I was thinking maybe a quick... A recap of the 75 to date, since we have no official next time on. Uh, just going back where things were at. So, the 75, coming in at number 75, we had the death of Spider-Man. Ultimate Spider-Man's 156 to 160 that killed off the ultimate Peter Parker. Love that story. 
Yeah, and that was with host John M. Wilson. 74, we had Next Wave, Agents of Hate, that 12-issue series with co-host Stephen Lacey. New Mutants 98 with Mark Adams came next. Marvel 2-in-1 Annual number 7 with John, with that great character piece on the thing, even if it wasn't big for continuity. In spot number 71, Fantastic Four 262, which was Assistant Editor's Month, discussed with Andrew Leyland. The Daredevil Man Without Fear miniseries with Andrew Stauffer. Avengers number four, bringing Captain America back in with Jim Radloff. And I have read that with my son recently, too. So seven-year-old Wilson knows that story now. Coming in at number 68, Amazing Spider-Man Annual, which was, you know, the wedding of Peter and MJ, which I discussed with fiance Amanda Ray Westfall. X-Factor 87 with Anthony Stauffer. That was the issue where the team sees a psychiatrist. So, of course, I bring in my buddy who teaches high school psychology. And that was the aftermath of the crossover that's, the name is escaping me, but the first big crossover after the X-Men 2 relaunch. And I've read that crossover now, so I know what they're talking about in that issue. Well, that's good, because I still haven't read that crossover. (laughs) But I can recognize it's a good issue. Number 66 was Thor 362 with Alan Middleton, which was The Death of the Executioner. Number 65 will not include the list of every issue involved in Spider-Man The Clone Saga, because there were 165 of them. I read them all. Yep. As did Matt Piercy, Christopher Tyler Short, and I. Punisher, welcome back, Frank. The 12-issue 2000 relaunch under Garth Ennis with Josh Avery. The complete New Mutants by Chris Claremont, involving Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, New Mutants 1-54, to and the first three annuals, discussed with Al Sedano. I know that guy. And I've now read all that again with all of the X-Men context. So my X-Men read-through has passed the end of Claremont's X-Men. I'm a happy person. Oh, nice. Are you happy because you're done with Claremont or just because you've made it to that milestone? I made it to the milestone. I'm not done with Claremont completely because he's still doing the other X-Books, but I have new, new, new mutants to read now. It's great. Nice. Marvel Comics number one with John, which is obviously the oldest one on this list. Silver Surfer Parable that I discussed with Ben Avery, and that was... That next wave are probably the two most pleasant surprises I had reading it. Partly because a lot of the higher-ranked stories were stories I'd already read, so they didn't have the chance to be surprised by it for this podcast. But yeah, Parable and Next Wave were the two stories I had never read that surprised me the most with how much I enjoyed them. Marvel Zombies with Jim Radloff, the original five-issue miniseries. Iron Man Armor Wars with Alan Middleton. It was Iron Man 225 to 231. Then there's Avengers Kang Dynasty, again with Al Sedano. That's Avengers Volume 3, numbers 41 through 55. Amazing Spider-Man 129, Josh Avery came back to discuss the Punisher again in his first appearance. Now, Al Sedano stepped up for Alpha Flight number 12, which is one that neither of us had read to that point. The person who'd originally signed up, well, unfortunately life happened and he just wasn't available to join us, but I will try to work with him in another podcast again. And I've, I, I read that when, it, when you were doing the episode, and I have since become an Alpha Flight fan. So I've now read Alpha Flights 1 through 52. Yeah, it is. That was an enjoyable issue. And I've said since then that, you know, when this podcast is done and I can go back and read just for the sake of reading again with the time I have, those issues of Alpha Flight are on the list. Yeah, because there's some build up to it that make it even more, have a, have a larger impact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good stuff. All right. And then number 55 was the first time Lex joined us. That was for World War Hulk issues one to five. Also known as City War Hulk. It was a fun story to read as a great smash up issue. Yeah, I think we said it's not so much about the deeper meanings, though they are there. But if you just want a great Hulk smash. Yeah, that's pretty much the the deepest meaning there is Hulk smash. (laughs) Yep. 
From there, Fractures and I discussed the four-issue Wolverine miniseries by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. 53, Avengers Disassembled, discussed with Matt Piercy. 52 was Thor, God of Thunder by Jason Aaron and Asad Ribic. So the first 11 issues of that series with Alan Middleton and Ed Moore. Then Jim Radloff and I discussed Deadpool Kills with Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe 1 to 4, Deadpool Kill Illustrated 1 to 4, and Deadpool Kills Deadpool 1 to 4. I enjoyed that much more than I expected to. I'm not a huge Deadpool fan, but that was pretty good fun reading. That, that's something I end up saying all the time about Deadpool because I've never, he's never been one of the characters that I think, oh yeah, Deadpool, I love that guy. I'm going to go out and read his stuff, but I've yet to read anything by him that I don't enjoy. It's, I, I always phrase this, he, he, it grows on you kind of like a fungus. You don't really want it there, but once it's there, it just keeps spreading. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have creams for that, Lex. They have Deadpool cream? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want suggestions for a Deadpool story that might turn you off the character, I can provide them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, my first exposure to Deadpool was the Civil War crossover, which was incredibly fun. And I stuck with him for a time, but then eventually dropped the title, because... I won't get into details now, because this is about the positive and great and the greatest Marvel stories. I don't want to take a time out to just start bashing one. Yeah, certainly not the Deadpool kills. That did have a lot of fun moments and a lot of surprising insight. Yeah. Yeah, this was actually something going on when he had two or three ongoing titles. Mm -hmm. Avengers 57, again with John Wilson, introducing the Vision. One of my favorite Avengers. Yes. Um Hawkeye by Matt Fraction and David Aha, 1 to 22 plus the annual with Mark Smith. Which is actually finished now. I don't think it was finished at the time that you had to record and brought and post that ish episode. It was not. There was one issue yet to come, which had an increased price point with no increase in pages. And I felt just they didn't quite stick the landing. Uh, yeah. So it's not enough to, I think, knock that story off the list, but maybe knock it down a few steps. <laughs> And I I think it was, it definitely brought the series to a good close. I thought, but I I didn't think it was enough to. I, I'm not sure I would agree with you on that. I think it was enough to justify the rest of the series. I don't think it brought it down any. At least may not have elevated it any further. But yeah, I think it could be that at least in in my experience, the longer I have to wait for something, the higher my expectations become. Because I think well, unless it's a case where somebody's getting sick or something like that, right? But no, I I, I think I agree with you on that one. It they it. It didn't need to wait, but it was definitely, it should have been there a little sooner. Wasn't that late because Jim Lee had another baby? Just kidding. Just kidding. Sorry. All right. So we followed up Hawkeye with giant-sized X-Men number one, again with John. Then Alex Case and I discussed the Korvax saga, Avengers 170 to 177. John came back yet again for Amazing Spider-Man 700, kicking off the superior Spider-Man era, which was a good issue, but I think more from that era could have been on the list. Yeah. Yeah, we could have easily included at least the first arc in Superior. Or even just put the Superior Spider-Man title on the yep. list somewhere. Somewhere above Clone Saga. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. And then uh, Fractures and I discussed the Joss Whedon-John Cassidy Astonishing X-Men run, the 24 regular issues plus the giant size number one. Uh, Lex returned to discuss the 9-11 issue of Spider-Man, so volume two, issue 36. In case you're in a good mood and don't want to be in one anymore. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, John M. Wilson and I discussed Amazing Spider-Man 50, the Spider-Man No More, with the first appearance of the Kingpin, although it's not the Kingpin that put it on the list, I don't think. No, it was that really furry sweater he was wearing. And then number 42, Ultimates number one, hit the list where Stephen Lacey and I decided the intention of the, 
voters must have been the first volume of the ultimate. So we discussed all 13. And then Stephen and I went from there to Planet Hulk, issues 92 to 105. Pulling back the curtain a bit, those episodes that took place or that were released a week apart, the first one ran long, so Stephen and I had to reschedule for the second one. They were recorded about three months apart. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you get lead time. All right. Then uh, Andrew Leyland and I discussed Fantastic Four number 285, Hero, where a boy set himself on fire to be like the Human Torch. Ouch. Jim Radloff came in to discuss the death of Captain America in the 2004 volume, issue 25, under the pen of Ed Brubaker. And John came back again for the Avengers Kree Scroll War, Avengers 89 to 97. I enjoyed that. We we, we, went, really, we went really in depth with that. It's a pretty uh, complex plot, and we t- took it apart. That we did. Matt Piercy came back for Thunderbolts number one, which is one of those ones, if you haven't read it and you're listening to these out of order, read that issue before you listen to the podcast. That and Alpha Flight number 12, it should be said, made the list largely because of their shocking endings. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how they ended, read them first. And do your best to f- not try to find out why it's a shock ending. Oh, yeah. Because some shock endings should be shocks. Mm-hmm. Number 36, Ben Avery of the you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Part podcast, he joined me for the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. by Jim Steranko run, Strange Tales 151 to 158, or at least the non-Doctor Strange has, plus Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Volume 1 issues 1 to 3 and 5. Then Scott McElroy, a.k.a. Dr. Spidey, and Ben Merritt, a.k.a. Comic Fiend, as Lex mentioned earlier when we are discussing Drunk Pete, Join me for Amazing Spider-Man 31 to 33 of Volume 1, The Master Planner Arc. Avengers Ultron Unlimited came in at number 34, with Haywood Wong and I discussing Avengers Volume 3, 19 to 22, written by Kurt Busiek. 33, Jim Radloff and I discussed Avengers vs. X-Men issues 0 through 12. For 32, Jim Radloff and I also discussed X-Men Fatal Attractions, which was officially X-Factor 92, X-Force 25, Uncanny 304, X-Men 25, Wolverine 75, and Excalibur 71, even though the collected hardcover has many, many more issues. Alan Middleton and I discussed Thor number 337 at number 31, which was the introduction of Beta Ray Bill. Al Sedano and I discussed Incredible Hulk 181, and I think everyone agrees that's there because it was the first significant Wolverine, and for no other reason. (laughs) (laughs) Wendigo! Number 29, Brian Rollins, also of Bureau 42, joined me to discuss Iron Man Extremis, issues 1 to 6 of that reboot from 2005. After the film came out, I started reading the Invincible Iron Man story that the series was online, or on stands at the time. But it was not long before I was like, you know what, I, I, I need more. So I went back to the beginning of the other series that was going and got the Iron Man Extremis hardcover, or paperback at that time, and, and read through it. And from there all the way forward. But yeah, that extremist, I love that extremist. Yeah, very well done. Our story number 28, Lex Pendragon joined us again for Spider-Man Blue. Seems very familiar with this story. Yeah, I was going to say, you seem to put your hand up and volunteer for a lot of Spider-Man stories on this list. I've read a lot of those. (laughs) Most of the classics I end up reading probably also mostly because of Drunk Pete, so you could probably get Ben and Scott in to do some of those too with us if we ever have to go back through them again. Yep. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll list it or put it on the top 100 list 25 years from now and we'll go through it again. There we go. Number 27 was Spider Man Maximum Carnage. Or do we want to call it Spider Man Red Cartridge? From that Genesis game that seems to be everyone's favorite memory of that story. (laughs) 
the the, the story that took me off Spider-Man comics. Yep. Yeah, that was uh, John Dan Gvozdin and I discussing that one. Dan Gvozdin, of course, being the Dan Gvozdin of Amazing Spider Talk. Then John and I discussed House of M in spot number 26. Al Sedano came back for Death of Captain Marvel from Math Marvel Graphic Novel number one, and for The Warlock by Jim Starlin run, Strange Tales 178 to 181 and Warlock 9 to 15, which you can hear him discuss in much greater detail over at Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. You may hear other familiar voices on there. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the number 23, Fantastic Four, the Galactus Trilogy, issues 48 to 50 of the original Fantastic Four volume with John M. Wilson. Or the one and two halves of G, since it wasn't really, really, but yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, it's a two-issue story spread over three issues. And not in decompression, no, it's a two-issue story that's just been like offset from the covers of the issues. It started before the cover of 49, <laughs> and but anyways. Yeah, side effect of major story compression. Rather than stretch a half-issue portion of the story out to a full issue, they just started the next story. They can do that. They're making the rules. It's 1966. <laughs> now, number 22 was X-Men Age of Apocalypse with Amanda Ray Westfall, which was actually the first one that we recorded after meeting Tom DeFalco, who was editor-in-chief when that came out, So, which is when he recorded that podcast bumper that you've been hearing, and it's, you know, also at the same time, he signed my copy of the Marvel 75 Years Omnibus that went along with this list. So my copy has been autographed by Tom DeFalco and Stan Lee. So, nice. so when do we get them on the podcast? We've got DeFalco on there. Stan Lee has announced he's no longer coming to Canada, and I would have hit him up for a bumper, but that was my first con, and no. For the lineup they had... <laughs> I mean, this was a convention where the celebrity guests included, for the photo ops, included Stan Lee, included six former cast members of Joss Whedon's Buffy, a couple Firefly people, three or four Doctor Who people, plus former Stargate, you know, Star Trek Voyager and Deep Space Nine people. Which con was this? It was the third annual Edmonton Comic Con. Ah. So it's the local con, the Edmonton Entertainment Expo. And when they were doing the photo ops, the instructions were, if you're here for Stan Lee, line up over there. If you're here for anybody else, <laughs> line up on that side. And the Stanley line was bigger. I'm not surprised. I waited in a line like that when I went to uh, Toronto. My family got their picture taken with Stanley. So I think that may have been, if that wasn't his actual last visit to Canada for that, uh, for Fan Expo 2014, I'm not sure. I think it was close at that point. So Yeah, I think 2015 was his last. Because it was after we saw him in Edmonton that he announced that his currently scheduled cons, including his the Toronto appearance were the last times he was going to appear in Canada. Mm -hmm. So he made it to Edmonton once. So I'm glad we got the photo and I got the autograph. And even the autograph, they were keeping that line moving and it was still long. Mm -hmm. And there was four people in there. There was, you know, the guy who gave you the rules. Don't talk to him. Don't ask any questions. We don't have time. They're basically telling me, don't ask him to record things for the podcast. So I didn't. I was going to say, wait, they ushered us through so quickly when we went through in the photograph, the entire family is standing around Stan Lee and my wife, you can see her hair flipped out to the side because she had been looking behind her for a second. They called her attention. Her head was mid flip when this photo got snapped and they had ushered us back out immediately afterwards. So you can actually see her hair still in motion as we're <laughs> moving past him. Yeah, it was close. And I will give them a lot of credit. They they kept those lines moving. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're never going to get everybody who wants to have a picture taken with him. If everybody's allowed to spend any significant amount of time with him, you're never going to get everybody through there in, you know, real time. No, 
No, so that's, yeah, I didn't hit him up for the podcast bumper. But Tom DeFalco, Brett Breeding, those guys were, they were very open to taking a few minutes to talk to the fans. So, uh, anyway, following Age of Apocalypse, we had X-Men, God Loves Man Kills, Marvel Graphic number number five. Such a good story. Oh, yeah. Again, discussed with Jim Radloff twice, in fact, because that was that and Avengers 57 were two of the three ones where my MP3 Skype recorder crashed and caused re-recordings. Then John and I discussed number 20, top 20, Secret Invasion, issues one to eight. Is that the one we disagreed on? I liked it more than you? No, that was House of M. House of M. Okay. Yeah, back at number 26. Daredevil 181, discussed with Anthony Stoffer. Number 18, Avengers Under Siege, Avengers 270 to 277, discussed with Rob Gillespie, which is the point where we hit yet another continent. That was when we hit guest host from the third continent, Rob being from Australia. Good, good. Uh, the Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, which was half of Amazing Spider-Man 248. I believe it was actually the shortest story, or it, it's either that or... Yeah, that would have been, I think, the shortest single story we discussed. It was the only time we discussed less than a full issue with Paul Spataro and Andrew Leyland, who are two-thirds of Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast over at Two True Freaks, which you may or may not hear me on in the near future. And by that, I mean we've already recorded the episode. It's just not out yet. Are you part of the panel now? Just to fill in backstory for people and listen to Listen to the Prophets, it was originally Paul Spataro, Andrew Leyland, and Sean Engel. Unfortunately, Sean Engel has passed away. So they've decided to keep it going, although they haven't released all the episodes that Sean recorded with them. They did a couple episodes with just the two of them. And then for the next, you know, foreseeable future, they're just doing rotating guests. Okay. So I was brought in for rotation on the two episodes covering the last two episodes of season two of Deep Space Nine. Gotcha. Yeah, they keep on putting out episodes that have him in there, even a new podcast that has him in it. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's their their keep them flying with Firefly because they were they were recording in advance and Sean was the one who did the editing, so they kept up with the recording and he was going to edit when he recovered. Gotcha. But as it turns out, Paul Spataro had software which also recorded all the conversations, so they still have them and they've decided to keep going. Without that, they would not have continued because they would not re-record any episodes that had been recorded with Sean. Right. That makes sense. You know, the, the, you can cut all or most of that out. I just wanted—I just wasn't sure what the situation was that was there. You know what? I, I think I'm going to leave that in because Sean was a loss to the podcasting community, mm -hmm. and he deserves some respect. And there's actually he, he we will hear his voice again on the Silver Screen Superheroes podcast I do by the end of the year. We had agreed to get together and discuss the Green Lantern film, and we didn't actually get a chance to record a full episode about it, but. We discussed that on the record when we were wrapping up my guest spot on his Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. So I decided that when I cover the Green Lantern film, most likely this September 2016, I'm going to release that portion of our conversation as part of that episode. Good, good. That's the one with Ryan Reynolds? That's the one with Ryan Reynolds. Sorry, that's the one he went out on. Uh, yep. Now, number 16, Stephen Lacey, who with Andrew Leyland make up the core of the fantastic cast. Discussed Annihilation. The Fantastic Cast is another great podcast. If you want to do a sequential read of the Fantastic Four, that's a phenomenal companion. Or you might want to listen to it, even if you're not doing the read-through, just because they're that entertaining. Then we get a string of John M. Wilson, three episodes in a row. Hulk, number one, Fantastic Four, number one, and Captain America Comics, number one. Make up 15, 14, and 13 on this list. So, 
Yeah, so John wasn't just here for the first episode of this podcast. He was there for a bunch of first issues on the podcast. I like origin stories. I like history. I think he just likes the number one. (laughs) I'll give you a number one. All right. Well, he wasn't there for story number 12, Avengers number one. For that, Mark Adams joined us. To be fair, though, I have just recently podcasted that with my daughter over at our other show. Just recently being a loose term. (laughs) (laughs) We've also got Secret Wars 1 to 12 with Lex Pendragon at number 11. We hit the top 10 with Amazing Fantasy 15. Guest host Scott McElroy and Ben Merritt. Then number 9, Captain America Winter Soldier, which are issues 1 to 14 of the aforementioned Ed Brubaker run with Alan and Emily Middleton. John and I came into Marvel's number 1 in story number 8, and again we decided to discuss all four issues of that miniseries rather than just the first issue. Infinity Gauntlet, issues 1 to 6 with Tyler Short, came in at number 7. And then John and I discussed two episodes that may have had the greatest lead time of anything that was recorded for the series. Oh, yeah, because I just called you and I was like, so um, I've gotten to this far in my X-Men read through. I'm going to go ahead and take notes and I'm ready to record whenever you want to. And we're like, well, let's go ahead and do it. (laughs) Yep. So those episodes released in the last week of April, the first week of May of 2016, were recorded on June 19th, 2015. For X-Men Days of Future Past and the Dark Phoenix Saga. I'm almost to follow the mutants for the record in my read-through because the Apocalypse movie that's coming out. But um, but yeah, back in the days whenever my read-through was young. And then the last four episodes were recorded almost sequentially and fairly recently. Fractures and I recorded Daredevil Born Again about Daredevil's 227 to 233. Just after we recorded episode three about Amazing Spider-Man Craven's Last Hunt. From Amazing 293 and 294, Spectacular Spider-Man 131 and 132, and Web of Spider-Man 31 and 32. That one had Fractures, Scott McElroy, Ben Merritt, and Dan Gavazdin. Last week, Proud Mutant, or Neek, and I discussed Civil War, issues 1 to 7. And then mere moments ago, you heard our discussion of Spider-Man, the death of Gwen Stacy from Amazing Spider-Man 121 to 122. Oh, snap. So this, uh, this series has been a lot of fun for me. It is probably the most creatively rewarding podcast I've done, and I have done a number of them now. So, unfortunately, it's also the most time-consuming, so I don't think I will ever do a weekly with guests format again. Yeah, I can only imagine. (laughs) The logistics have been interesting, we'll put it that way. And it's not like, you know, an issue a week with a guest, but you have like four, you know, eight-page story here and an eight-year story over there, and it's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, these 75 issues represent a grand total of 697 comics. It's amazing that you were able to get all of them in, in time to even do some of the episodes that we've had. Yeah, I started reading about three months before the first episode hit. I started reading mid-September of 2014 and got the first episode out December 31st, just because I felt compelled to start the series by the end of that year, but wanted the maximum lead time. Mm. So that's... The reason it's been released every Wednesday is not so much because it's New Comic Day, but because 2014, December 31st, ended on a Wednesday. (laughs) The December 31st thing was buying myself as much time as I could. That's the date I chose. Had that been on a Sunday, this would have been every Sunday for the last 75 weeks instead. I think it's nice coming out on New Comic Book Day, though. I've always enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a happy coincidence. And I should say it wasn't every Wednesday. I do apologize Due to sick toddlers and the fact that my fiance and I were reading the same copy of Age of Ultron, that episode came out two days after it was due, 
because we just hadn't recorded it yet on the official release date. So that one was recorded, edited, and released that Friday. Still, I think oh, no. one out of 75, that's yeah. still not not just a passing grade. That's still an A. Oh, no, you missed one by two <laughs> days out of 75 episodes. I don't think I've ever put out 75 episodes of anything on time. So good job. <laughs> I don't know. I've done about 300 podcasts so far. And I've had a grand total of three of them come out late. <laughs> and all three of those irk me to no end. <laughs> I really helped try to make things late for you, though, by getting your recordings well after the last minute. In yeah, some of them, but hey, they all made it. So yeah, we're truly never impressive. a guest host on a late episode. All right. Anyway, so again, guys, thanks for coming on. Listeners, stay subscribed to the feed. There has been discussion of coming back, and we will, with some voices you've heard, some voices you haven't. We've decided that either there are more than 75 Marvel stories worth discussing, or that there are some Marvel stories worth discussing that should have ranked on this list instead of things that did. So, I will not promise a frequency, because we don't have lead time, nothing has been recorded or set up. And therefore, nothing can ever officially be late. Yep, but there will be some just random appearances of episodes discussing things that could have been on here but weren't. Things like Marvel's licensed comics, which none of which made the list, or Max titles, which didn't make the list. I mean, there's one particular podcast we're not going to name because we haven't discussed it in 10 months, want to make sure things are lined up, but a well-respected podcaster that John may or may not have recorded with last night, and I have been talking about doing the first six issues of JMS's Supreme Power. Mm, there have yes. also been conversations about you know, chunks of the G.I. Joe series and whatnot. So, again, no promise for frequency, but if you're willing to just let that dead podcast stay in your feed, you may see things showing up again in the future. Well, if Hey Kids Comics can go unweekly and start putting out specials, then, then you can do the same thing. It's okay. There's precedent. There is. There's also going to be just a quick announcement. There will be some changes to the podcasting schedule. There's a, a podcast I've recorded that's nothing but an official announcement. But I need to streamline my time now that I'm engaged with a couple kids in the house, the youngest of whom is three. I will continue to podcast about comics on the last Wednesday of every month in comic book physics. I will continue to podcast about X-Files, although instead of doing an episode every two weeks, at the end of our season three coverage, when we start season four, that's going to become a monthly podcast, but each month we'll cover a complete disc of either the DVD or Blu-ray collections. So instead of doing two to three episodes a month, or 26 episodes a year, we are now going to be going to four episodes a month, you know, plus the odds and ends with the crossovers. So even though the podcast will come out less frequency, they will cover more and that series will finish sooner to scratch my TV itch. And the movie itch, there's a lot of movies I love that I want to discuss. And I find my collection is growing with movies I want to watch. But part of podcasting and working for Bureau 42 is to give myself an excuse to watch stuff. If I stick to just superhero movies, a lot of these movies are going to sit there and never get watched. So Silver Screen Superheroes is only going to run through the course of this year. Come January 2017, its spot on the schedule is going to be replaced with Make Me Watch It. There will be open voting with a list of every movie I own but have never seen, which is a feature film. So a minimum of 40 minutes. You can vote for any or all movies that you want to hear me discuss. And we'll be podcasting about it. So once a month, I will do either the, the title with the most votes or something that's tied for the most votes, as well as random interstitial episodes. Can we, don can we donate movies to that? Well, it's got to be something I have access to. So, so if we mail them to you? That's one option. Something I have been toying with, 
or an idea I have been toying with that I might as well discuss now just because it, it fits in. I have considered setting up a Patreon for all of Euro42's podcasts, and I was thinking that one of the reward levels would be you name anything that's in the Canadian iTunes store, and that can be added to the list and discussed, just so long as I have access to it. If it's Canadian iTunes or Canadian Netflix, then you can essentially put it on the list and join us for the podcast. And that's, like I said, that's been an idea I've been kicking around as a potential Patreon reward. I don't know if there's interest in Patreon for Bureau 42's podcasts or not, especially with this one wrapping up its weekly run. So we'll take feedback on that at Bureau42podcasts at gmail.com if you've got ideas. I think the idea that if you have to watch it, somebody else should have to watch it with you. So I like the idea of somebody donating and has to watch and then star on the podcast with you. All right. So yeah, that's the idea that's been kicking around. Like I said, we'll guarantee monthly episodes, but if given the number of movies I own and haven't watched yet, if I just do one a month, then that podcast series will wrap up, assuming I don't buy any more, around the year 2093. I cannot guarantee I will live that long, especially with my diet and exercise habits. No podcast from Beyond the Grave? We'll get you some cybernetics. We'll make you the bionic podcaster. That one will have randomly released interstitial episodes. I did send out initial voting to make sure that all the spreadsheets work. So I can tell you that when that one kicks off, it's going to kick off with the title that's received the most votes to date in one of those episodes, which is the typical episode where I sit down and look at one movie, and that will be the 1963 Doctor Who and the Daleks, with Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. Oh. That was so pretty, though. Yeah, the first one that appeared in color. Early on, we will also have a comparative podcast, because one of the episodes I had never seen, or one of the movies I owned but had never seen, was Alfred Hitchcock's remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. I'd only seen his original. We had friends over to visit, and that's the movie they chose to watch. So now I've seen both, and they'll have a comparative podcast of that out around the time of launch, and perhaps some more, because there will also be some guest hosting. Anyone who's interested in being a guest, you, you can talk to me, especially if you've got your own podcast and some experience and know how it works. I'm totally open to that, and when guests come on, they can look at the complete list of titles, but it doesn't matter how the voting is going. You say, I want to discuss that one, and that's the one the guest hears, or guest discusses. So, and of course, John and Lex, you are both welcome to take part in that one. That'll be Sounds fun. Sounds like fun. Definitely. All right. So that's where things are at for that. If you miss Silver Screen Superheroes, well, there's, believe it or not, there are still a couple of superhero movies I've never watched, so you can vote them up on the list. But anyway, feel free to plug or to vote for this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help them get noticed. So guys, would you like to discuss the merits of, say, Avengers Inspirations or More Than Bits at this point? Well, I think More Than Bits is actually wrapped at this point. So <laughs> that one's gone. Okay. Okay. This is my summer of podcasting. I'm going to be doing a lot of different stuff. I hope my plan is to do a lot of different stuff and revisit a lot of my shows. So Avengers Inspirations is going to have regular releases. The New 52 Adventures of Superman has already resumed recording with a uh, sort of a volume two setup. We're going to be looking at the stories that take us into Rebirth with Superman. Uh, that's Al Sedano and I teaming up on that. This month, you'll be seeing the release of several quote-unquote lost episodes of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, because there are things happening with that show in a new form. But check out the lost episodes of Amazing Spider-Man Classics coming out this month, recorded five years ago and... Brought to your listening pleasure because I am never late either, just like just like Blaine. And um, I'm resuming my Golden Age reading, so hopefully that'll mean I'll be able to get some Golden Age Superman episodes out. But but yeah, um, I plan to do a lot of a lot of stuff with my microphone this summer, and 
hopefully you'll be along for at least some of it. I know I will be. Okay. So with that, yeah, vote for that and any other shows you listen to. All right. So everyone, thanks for for joining us for the series. And as I said. And Blaine, thank you for doing this series. It's been a joy to listen to every week. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But no, this was this this was a fantastic work that you did. I mean, talk about adding to the volumes of geek culture and 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 comic fandom. This is this is an accomplishment, and it's really cool, and it's something that I I refer people to. So very happy to be a part of it. Proud of you. Like like I don't know. Really really proud that you were able to get this done. It's really really cool. Yeah, I'm quite happy with that part as well, <laughs> because I, yeah, as I said, there was a lot of work. There were times I mentioned to people that, man, I wish I'd announce this bi-weekly, but <laughs> we made it. Here we go. And, and, and if you had gone bi-weekly, you'd still be like in the lower half of the list right now. And, and yeah. you wouldn't be having nearly as much fun. Yeah, we'd be about halfway through. We'd be just a few weeks away from Incredible Hulk 181. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, yeah, look forward not to. nearly as much fun. <laughs> Anyway, so again, everyone check out the podcast that you've heard that I just listed for all the podcast hosts we've had in the series. I would think they're all worth listening to or they wouldn't have been invited on or wouldn't have been my Facebook friends in the first place. Because honestly, that's how I made most of my social connections in the podcasting world was just following podcasters. And when this list was published, I threw it on Facebook. Hey, would anyone be interested in listening to or participating in a podcast idea like this? And I was quite overwhelmed with how rapidly all 75 guest spots were able to fill with people going, yep, 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 me, me, me. I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. I've been fielded a few Facebook friend requests from podcasters I wasn't already in communication with saying, I heard you're doing this. I want in. So I've been very pleased with the response. Yeah. So yeah, feel free to check out everything else at Bureau 42. We've got comic book physics. We've got X-Files. We've got, you know, about half a year's worth of silver screen superheroes left. Alex Case is currently filling in for me on that one, and I'll take over again in September when I do with the Green Lantern movie. Then I'll follow up with Daredevil and Elektra before I wrap up with The Incredibles. And there may or may not be special guests on some of those episodes. All right, and I guess finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, Do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. 
you've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, mm-hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um... Maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night. Searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet... One of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the Prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation. With Sean Engel... And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. 
Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, Every 8th Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville. Every 8th Tuesday, only at twotruefreaks.com. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah. The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones... Or a steel. 
The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. In February 2014, a new podcast dedicated to the Marvel Comics character, Adam Warlock, debuted. And the internet broke in half. Well, not really. Far from it, to be honest. But a few of you actually noticed, and we thank you for that. Over the course of 2014, we covered all of Adam's Silver Age adventures and have started on his Bronze Age solo series, as well as his current appearance in two Thanos specials. But it's time for a change. So I'm sad to announce that episode 20 will be the last episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. However, I am pleased to announce that in 2015, we will premiere the first episode, which we will call Episode 21, of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Yes, the show is continuing, but now with more Thanos. Each month, we have John M. Wilson on as we cover an issue of Warlock. And the other episode of the month, we will continue to have Brian Zeno on to cover Thanos' appearances, starting with Captain Marvel 25. So join us in 2015 for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Now with 20% more Thanos. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase but then again may have, about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you're making me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Two True Freaks. Dot com. A Kids Comics, still every Thursday at Two True Freaks.
Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gurker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? Uh, no, they just streamlined it, so the two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. It's time for some thrilling heroics. A brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying. A Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible. Cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western. And that makes us mighty. We've found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job. They said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side. Not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on TutuFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave.